Hello everyone, this is Songs from a Room, an intimate singer-songwriter showcase where I, Bob Palos, invite very talented artists to the podcast for a one-on-one. We'll learn a little about each artist, what inspires them, what brought them to play the music they play, and the moments that led them to write the songs they wrote. Then finally, to play me a song from a room. I say I gotta get the introduction. Sure, sure. Uh, I suppose. Uh, we're here with uh, Jason Trachtenberg in my apartment, a uh, very talented singer-songwriter, member of the Trachtenberg Family Slideshow, and creator of Me and Lee, a musical based off the book by Judith Ferry Baker about her relationship with Lee Harvey Oswald. Hello. Hello. <laughs> that was a fair introduction. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I agree to all of that. It's better when I write it down, you know? Oh, note, notes are important, be yeah. it for uh, uh, music or comedy. Oh yeah, you gotta have your notes. Should we talk about the the musical that you're? Uh... Sure thing. I, I write songs, you mm-hmm. know, but I, I just want to do something more than just write songs. I want to. I can't not do it. It just it just happens, and so I find these subjects, these these ideas, as a vehicle for the songs, but a story that needs to be told as well too. Okay, so let's fast forward to write this second. I wrote my second musical called Me and Lee. It's the story. It's it's adapted from the novel called Me and Lee. The novel, the the autobiography, I should say. She's glad Judith, Judith would kill me if she was right here. So, <laughs> so so Judith Barry Baker was a teen science superstar, and my my new musical is based on her story. She was recruited by the U.S. government in 1962 because of her amazing skills as a teen scientist, and uh, this was brought in into the scientific community who were working to develop cancerous bioweapons to take out their enemies. One of these enemies included, of course. Fidel Castro, this was the height of the Cold War. And so it was unbeknownst to her. She thought she was just using her skills to find a cure for cancer. But she was secretly drawn into this project. Along the way, she met and fell in love with another government agent who was also involved in the project, and his name was Lee Harvey Oswald. Dun, dun, dun. So Judith had a secret love affair with Lee Oswald. They were both married, which is why the affair had to be secret, both unhappily married, um, as, as it was. And through Judith, Lee told her all throughout 1963 of all the inner workings of the plan and that was developing to assassinate John Kennedy, which of course obviously uh, went down in Dallas, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. I think we all remember. Yeah, we, it's, where were you when you when you when you, when you remember? <laughs> everyone seems to remember except for Richard Nixon, who somehow just doesn't remember where he was. But otherwise, everyone everyone seems to remember exactly where they were. Um, and and so amazingly, Judith uh, Judith kept her story to herself for about. 30 years while she raised her five kids in Florida. And then when, when her oldest child uh, left the house, she realized it was time to come forward with her story. And so in the early 90s, in the mid-90s, she began telling her story little by little. And then she eventually came out with her book in 2011 called Me and Lee on Trine Day Press. And so I, I read that my, my Rachel, my, my daughter Rachel and my wife Tina you know, know I've always been... Uh, Fascinated with the assassination. It's called assassination fascination for those in the assassinologist <laughs> community, which which we are. Well, the play got me googling. Like, just yes. you know, it gets you on that dark web. You know, it's, looking for information. It's a fast. It's the most fascinating story. It's better than Shakespeare. It's better than. It's better than the Bible. It's such an interesting story. Am I talking so fast for everyone? If so, I apologize. <laughs> just, just if you listen closely, you'll catch everything. But I know I've been told. I, I've been told I'm a real fast talker. Is 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 what I hear. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. Well, we should. Get some more, learn about you a little bit. Uh, we'll just know, you were born in New York, right? Well, I was born in Syracuse, New York, but I'm actually, a, my family's from Philadelphia, th- three generations. Oh, wow. But my, but my dad took a job uh, in some sort of social work situation in Syracuse just for that one year that, that I was born. But yeah, I, I um, 
So my birth certificate is New York, Syracuse, yeah. but but we're really from Philadelphia. Okay, so real really a Philadelphia stock. I only connect with New York as as a as, a, as an adult. As an adult, yeah. so like when did you when did you move out to New York? Well, I've had several incarnations in this lifetime. You yeah, know, I originally moved to New York in 1989 uh, because I wanted to be uh, the next Cliff Richard. Do, do you guys know who Cliff Richard is? What's that? Um, Cliff Richard is the British Elvis. The British Elvis. The British Elvis. He's the ageless British Elvis. Okay. He's mm. he started his career in the 1950s. Uh, with you know, with kind of the the, the doo wop kind of you know the, the '50s kind of rock with a band called The Shadows in the early '60s, and evolved decade for decade per decade as the music was evolving, and, and and he was influential in its in its evolution as well too. I don't think he actually went punk or new wave, new wave, but he probably did. I'm sure he went disco. For, yeah, I'm know, sure he's got a new wave one out there. Yeah, '78, '79, um, and he's ageless. He looks the same now as he did in in. Of course, when, when he, in the '50s, he looked like he was you know. 12 or whatever but but like now he looks like he's in his 30s or 40s he's probably pushing 70 or so <laughs> and so that's i wanted to be the cliff richard right that's that's, that's how i saw myself but then i guess the timing was really lucky because uh it was still the bit of the grungy new york back then 1989 mm-hmm. 1990 it was still a bit of the scary new york just just a little bit it was it was still it was changing for sure it wasn't like in the in the earlier 80s it was it was it was still safe it, was, it wasn't dangerous but i mean although i had a couple incidences what, no what, starbucks yet though no starbucks that was that was the defining thing there was no <laughs> starbucks no dunkin donuts in the east village but i fell into this i originally gravitated toward the, toward the, towards the greenwich village scene mm. because that's that scene was only at this point less than 15 years removed from bob dylan and all that. It really wasn't that far removed. Yeah, there's still yeah. like hints of it. You could still feel it. Yeah. You could still feel it. But then I was I gravitated towards the East Village just because I started hanging out with uh, these different kind of characters, right? Which which were really influential to me. I was way too young to be hanging out with them, but it's just, <laughs> it, and that's where I really got my early education on um, reality. <laughs> it, it was one of those situations where I had to unlearn everything I ever learned. Yeah. In life and in school, everything my parents taught me was was had to, had to be adjusted. Everything I saw saw on television had to be washed out because it was it was just and, and so it was this East Village scene, um, specifically clubs such as the Gargoyle Mechanique Laboratory. And fortunately, like like any good club, they had an open mic. Yeah, it's so important that for all every club should have open mics. I mean, um, Madison Square Garden should have an open mic. You know, <laughs> put it, put, make it on like an off off Tuesday at you know early. Yeah, that would be o'clock. a long open mic. That's what I'm saying though. Just like, but like, just just, give, just give, every venue should have it. It should be an obligation to, in order to get a business license as a music venue to give back to the community and have an open mic at least once a week, even at a real crummy time, even like Sunday morning at eleven o'clock. So if, if that's if, if that's all you got. Yeah, because you're feeding the scene in a lot of ways. You are, and how else are you going to find the next new thing? But it's not in your vested financial interest to do that, so they don't do it. Yeah, it's 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 so so yeah. Every venue should have so anyway, Thank you. So I so said so I'd go to these open mics and I'd meet these characters who just are not around anymore. Yeah. Um, and these people were so radical, and they were so so out there with their art. And then and then I gravitated towards the early anti folk scene as well too, of course, which was really important. Uh, founded by of course Latch. Um, it was at a club called the Chameleon Club. Uh, which which was pre sidewalk. It was around 1988, 89, and that's very famous where Beck came. I, I missed Beck by a couple months apparently. I don't. Oh know, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it would have. He was on his way up. Do you have a song to sing and a story to tell? Just send an email to songsfromroompodcast at gmail.com to apply to be a guest on the show. 
Just give us your name, a little information about yourself, and a track of the song you'd like to sing. Songsfromaroompodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing your song. So anyway, so, so influences like Pale Face, and I just took it all in. What influences from performance art became influenced by all the stuff I had, I had never thought I would have been. And so that was re- really, really important. I changed and I grew, and I just uh, became open to, to experiencing new things. And it was so important, especially around ages like 19. I was 19 when I moved here in 89, 19, 20, 21. And then it got to a point where uh, I was smoking too much marijuana, and I dropped out of college, <laughs> and I realized, oh no, uh, I'm not going to be able to finish college, and I'm not going to be able to get a job of any variety. So I, I got a little. I said, oh shoot, this New York thing is not going to work out right now. I don't have my chops together yet. Um, so long, long story short, uh, we moved to Seattle. I, I had my, 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 I had my, my girlfriend was Tina, who became mm-hmm. my wife, and my daughter's mom. We're still married, 25 years, and so she was my girlfriend. Congratulations! Thank you, thank you. It, it can be done. It, <laughs> it's, it, uh, we'll talk about that later, but it, it's. <laughs> It's it's um, you learn a lot. Yeah, you learn a lot. Yeah, you know, we have a twenty five year old daughter too, of course, Rachel. Um, and so we moved to Seattle for ten years in the nineties. Wait a second, where are we? Seattle in the nineties? <laughs> Oops, that was the right move, uh, yeah. right? And and it's and then this whole other like knowledge base came my way as far as bands, indie rock, music, uh, the the G word, right? I'm not gonna say it, right? Oh yeah, because yeah. because the the sub pop nomenclature precisely <laughs> precisely. I, I almost walked Jonathan Poneman's dog. I mean, I, I, so, so so I started sorry the founder of Sub Pop. Oh yeah. So I, so I was doing um, I was doing dog walking and I became really good friends with the guys who were in the Presidents of the United States of America. That band, uh, specifically mm-hmm. Chris Ballou, was very very helpful and influential in uh, developing my act as a writer and just taking it. So I had this other huge growth phase that happened in the nineties as well. You know, I thought I'd, I'd taken it from A to B and then B to C. The story's wrapping up soon. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're, we're getting there soon. Um, but I still hadn't developed any sort of fan base or following. I was hosting open mics in Seattle. It's really great open mic at this place called the Queen Anne coffee house. And it was on Friday night. It was the best night. It would have 20 acts would come of all kinds of weirdos. We're trying to revive like the New York kind of stuff. And we had mm. some weirdos. It was great. Yeah. And it was, it was still the nineties. You know, people wanted to get out but they weren't, they weren't stuck on their, you know, eye bobs or whatever, you know. <laughs> Big in Seattle was the um, garage sale, estate sale culture. P- people would have these houses with all the stuff in it. Uh, their heyday, of course, was in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So you'd go to their house and you'd, you'd buy their stuff for f- 50 cents, a dollar. Everything, because they're trying to get rid of the stuff so they could like turn the house over and sell it to someone else. Whatever. So they're just getting rid of the stuff. And so one of the things that was really common to find was slide collections, uh, vintage slide collections, mostly from the heyday of the slide era, which was the 50s, 60s, and 70s, specifically the 50s and 60s. My wife, Tina, she had an idea where she, I had all these topical songs. She said, how about I buy slides and we'll illustrate your songs with these slides to, to, to show some of the topics you're talking about? And I thought, oh, that's, I don't like that idea. You know? so, we, 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 so she bought a box of slides and a projector, a real old-fashioned slide projector, not, not even a Kodak carousel, but like, like an old-fashioned one where you dropped a slide in. Like this, oh, yeah. The, the carousels, that's, 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 that's the That's modern. the good stuff. That's the good one. That, that's when we ended up, we, we ended up endorsing the Kodak carousel and tried, tried to get a sponsorship deal, but apparently they weren't giving out slide projector sponsorship deals in the early <laughs> 2000s, apparently. Who knew? Um, and, and so one night, I said, well, let me go check out these slides, right? It was, in, it was probably like what, 1 o'clock in the morning or so, and, and, and we, we, had a, we had a cute little house in Seattle that, 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 that we lived in. It was, Seattle was so easy. We had three Volvos. It was, wow. it was easy living, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a 79, an 82, and an 83, right? So, yeah. so it wasn't, you know. There's, I mean. They're great cars. Okay. So I, I just put the slides in the projector, and then all of a sudden was instantaneously, and, and just projected on, on a white wall, just on, on a wall. We didn't have a screen or anything. I was instantaneously transported back 
1959. To that person's life. To that person's life. An, an intimate invitation into their life, mm-hmm. which they had no intention of, of, <laughs> of letting, letting made public. You know, it was for their basement, for their family, you know, for their laughs. So they, weren't, they didn't ex- expect some, some, some corny songwriter to get their slides. That's yeah. the last thing they were counting on. <laughs> Oops. And so instead of taking the slides and putting them to my already written songs, I did what I always do. I'm going to write a new song about these slides because the slides told a very specific story because they're all like in a box. It said, you know, Japan, 1959. You know, so just open it up and, and there we were with these colors and these images and these fashions that just don't exist anymore. You know, people just don't, just don't dress like this anymore. They don't look like, they don't have these hairstyles anymore. It's like, jeez, this is, this is so exciting. And I, so I cracked it, cranked out the song and I showed it to Tina in the morning and she said, you know, we've got to get this thing out there. This is it, this is it. So one thing led to the next and we started, I started doing shows with, with this one song, with this one slide song. But the response was overwhelming. People, people were like, actually started coming to my shows. This is the first time this has ever happened. And I'd, I'd been in show business for, you know, or I'd been trying to be in show business for up to 12 or 13 years at this point, starting probably like in 87 or 88. Now at this point, it's Now you got a, a thing growing. Something is growing. So something's here. And then we started getting more shows. We started getting more shows just as a result of this one song. So I wrote another slide song and people just wanted to see the slide songs. They didn't care about the other songs. Like, okay, I, I get it. I get it. I, I can take a hint. <laughs> and then we started doing so many shows that, um, well, you know, our daughter, who was six years old at the time, was like, well, what, what's she going to do while we're doing shows? Because uh, we, we didn't do babysitters. We, just, we, just, we, we would do attachment parenting. So we were, mm. always, we were always with our daughter. We, we were constantly, even, even, at, even in her school, we did, we did an uh, alternative school where Tina would go to the school every day. And so we were with her constantly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, and our friends would help us babysit from time to time. But, like, we could only ask them so often. We'd, I'd get to a point where I was doing two or three shows a week now, which is really exciting. You know, from every, everywhere from coffee houses to small clubs or opening up for different people and stuff. And, and so we thought, well, she's six years old. She needs an instrument. We need a drummer. <laughs> you know, let's let's put her on drums, right? And there's a drum school right up the street called Seattle Drum School, Seattle Drum Academy, or something like that. Seattle Drum School, and so she took to drums right away. And and she, within the first within the after the first lesson, she was as good a drummer as as uh, as I could ever want. And so <laughs> yeah. she became our drummer. She can keep the beat. She yeah. was a good. She she had a good. Unlike me, she actually she actually had a better sense of timing than I do. <laughs> my my, uh, my timing's a little off. Um, <laughs> but and so that's how the Trachtenberg Family Sideshow Players came to be. It just it just started gaining momentum. It started gaining momentum. So much so that we uh, we hit the glass ceiling in Seattle, mm-hmm. and we're like, "Well, maybe it's time to go back to New York. Maybe I got my chops down." All right, round two. Round two. Here we come. Because because I left because I didn't have my chops down. Got my chops. Got yeah. this act. We gave away everything we had that didn't fit in this van. It was a it was like an '83 Ford Econoline 100 series or something van. We painted the track and we found a sideshow with player's name on the side of the van and took off from Seattle to New York. Um, I'm kind of a slow driver. I think it took two weeks to make it all the way through. So some people can do it in 48 hours. A lot of stops, me. you know. I like stopping. I like, yeah. I like the rest. I like, I like, I like seeing what, what, what this rest area looks like. You know? <laughs> like walking around, like in a little grass, you know, go, go, go step on some. I'm, I'm a slow driver, that's, that's for sure. Um, and so we made it out here, and it just took off like crazy. I'd never seen anything like it before. The phone's ringing off the hook. We're getting all these gigs. Um, people want to tour with us. People want to work with us. Like, oh, my God, this is so exciting. Because I've seen the other side, and, it's, and I know how hard it can be. Yeah. And it, I guess it, the, the two things that it culminated in were an appearance on the Conan O'Brien show in early January of 2003. We'd only been here for six months. Yeah. And it just took off. It was, it was so, we, were, we were working so much. And then we got to tour with They Might Be Giants, which was an absolute dream come true, because they were the band that... Uh, Wanted, they, they were the band that influenced me to get into show business because at the time it was like 1986, 87. Like, you know, I thought all the bands were like, were like Motley Crue. And, and then I heard They Might Be Giants. I'm like, oh, two nerdy guys singing about intellectual smart things with amazing melodies and funny rhymes and kind of funny and, and, and melodies. Yeah. Oh, 
Maybe sure. I could be a musician too. And so, so thanks to the MIP Giants, I said, okay, maybe I can do this too. So then, so then we got to, tw- and we, uh, we put out our first CD on their label, Bar None. So we worked it really hard, travel, traveled, 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 traveled for like three years, nonstop across the country, m- mother, father, daughter. I have three bins filled with press, three bins, like mm-hmm. these, these bins. And I just went through it. I got it down to two bins because I had a lot of copies of the same article. <laughs> so we got two bins filled with press. Um, okay, but there were a lot of sections of like we didn't need, like we don't need the, the business and the, uh, the front. Okay, so the, I got one bin filled. No, just <laughs> and one bin, I got one bin filled with press and one bin filled with posters from, from all the different shows. Um, all right, well, let's talk about, I guess, the song you're going to sing for us today. You, uh, is it a new song you've written or one, one uh, in the bank? The, the, the one I'd like to do, it's in the bank. Uh, okay. So I made a withdrawal th- this morning. Uh, <laughs> let me say this. As, uh, as, 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 as a... Um, as, as a shrewd business person, it's always better to make deposits than withdrawals, right? <laughs> trust me about this one. This song is about a guy, and it could be any guy. I don't, I don't know necessarily who, but he talks really fast, mm-hmm. right? And people have, under, have trouble understanding what he's saying because he's talking so fast, but maybe he really doesn't, doesn't have nothing much to say. Uh, so this song... Uh, oh, it's called Fast Talker. Fast Talker, and do you, uh, do you write this? How long was this? This is a pretty old song. But pretty old song. But I, I thought it would be appropriate for this, for this show. I got new ones, too. Don't worry about that. But, <laughs> uh, I, I, sometimes I just feel like doing certain ones. At certain do, you, uh, do you remember when you wrote the song, how long it took to write? Oh, uh, this one was, was, was very fast. Okay, yeah. It was as fast as the song is. Just popped out. It's just like, I just, this, one, this one was the one where, where the melody and the lyric were at the same time. Right. So you save time if the melody and the lyric come out at the same time, right? <laughs> it's twice as fast. So this one, and it also falls into place so nicely that way, too. So here we go. It's called Fast Talker. All right. So this is from my country phase. Such a real fast talker, but you really don't got nothing much to say. No, not much. You're a bummer. Let the words get in the way. You fancy find yourself a real fast talker, but you really don't got nothing much to say. No, not much. You're a bummer. Let the words get in the way. You're towing out the company line. You really don't got nothing much to say. Not much by propping up the status quo. You really don't got nothing going anyway, but you're such a real fast talker, but you really don't got nothing much to say. No, not much. You're bumbling. Let the words get in the way. Look out, guitar. company line you really don't got nothing much to say not much by propping up the status quo you really don't got nothing going anyway but you're such a real fast talker but you really don't got nothing much to say no not much you're fumbling let the words get in the way you're bumbling let the words get in the way you're fumbling let the words get in the way you're such a real fast talker Woo-hoo. yeah all right talker. jason trachtenberg everybody Woo. It's another another great one. Thanks. Some great uh, country finger picking there. Uh, that's, that's some pretty good. I'm, I'm, my, my solos are unique. <laughs> yeah, I'll, they're not. You know, they're not satisfying. I can't get paid for solos like that. No, no one's gonna pay me to do that, that solo. But for, for, for these purposes, they're just fine. No, they're great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Bye, bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Farewell. Thanks for listening. This was songs from a room. Thank you to Ben Shapiro for providing all the theme music. 
Any inquiries, just email us at songsfromaroompodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned, dialed up, and downloaded for the next episode. Bye.